This week's episode of Certified comes to you from ACE the OCS. This time of year, everyone is looking for practice tests to make sure they are ready for test day, and we've got an excellent suggestion to help you prepare to ace the exam. ACE the OCS is an updated practice test written for the 2021 exam with questions that feel similar to the actual test regarding their difficulty, question breakdown by body region, and content areas. The author includes several references and detailed explanations behind right and wrong answers for each question to help you learn. Please see the direct Amazon link in our show notes and order your copy today. Again, the name of the book is Ace the OCS, and you can order it directly through Amazon at the link in the show notes. This is Certified, the OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS exam. Hi, everyone. Today, we're going to switch topics a little bit. We're going to go over TMJ dysfunction. This is not an area that we covered in season one, so we felt it was really important to address in this season. One thing I do want to remind you, though, is that TMJ is not a large portion of this test. It's only 3%. So keep that in mind um, when you're studying and when you're focusing your test efforts um, or your studying efforts. You know, keep in mind those test section breakdowns. Um, I will also remind you, too, as I was looking back at this, the test is broken down on the ABPTS website by body region, but also on type of question, whether it be examination, evaluation, treatment, um, that kind of a thing. So it may be helpful to review that also. Similar to the SI joint, this is an area that's often confusing because the anatomy the anatomy is very involved, and it's not as frequently used in clinical practice for most of us. So what we're going to start with in this episode is a very brief anatomy review. The goal of these podcast episodes is to keep this digestible. So if you have further questions or areas you're not familiar with, you can always reference back to your current concepts or MedBridge or shoot us an email. We'd be happy to help you. So um, it's important to remember that this is a diarthrodal synovial joint. It's going to connect the temporal bone to the mandible. And the temporomandibular joint consists of a fibrocartilaginous disc, the supporting ligaments, a surrounding joint capsule, and the muscles of mastication. The fibrocartilaginous disc is going to separate the joint into two spaces. We have our superior aspect, which is the space between the mandibular fossa and the superior aspect of the disc. And this is also going to be the location of translation. The inferior aspect of the joint is going to be defined by the space between the inferior disc and the mandibular condyle. This is going to be the location of rotation. So the superior aspect of the joint is where the translation occurs, and the inferior aspect of the joint is where the rotation occurs. So we're going to talk about the disc. The role of the disc is to transmit forces and help stabilize the TMJ. It's going to have three divisions. We have an anterior, an intermediate, and a posterior division. The intermediate portion, it's important to note, is avascular and aneural. So the next thing that we're going to talk about anatomy-wise is the temporomandibular ligament. It's going to support the lateral capsule. So what's important to note here is that there's superficial oblique fibers, and those fibers are what's going to limit the condylar head rotation during opening. The horizontal fibers are going to limit posterior translation of the condyle. And lastly, for the anatomy, it's important to review the muscular support here, the muscles of mastication. So you have the masseter, the temporalis, the medial and lateral pterygoid, and the supra and infrahyoids. Elevation is completed from the masseter, the temporalis, and the medial pterygoid. Depression 
is completed by the lateral pterygoid and the supra and infrahyoids. Protrusion is completed by bilateral, medial, and lateral pterygoids and the superficial masseter. Retrusion is going to be the deeper fibers of the masseter, temporalis and the suprahyoids. Lateral deviation is completed by the contralateral, medial, and lateral pterygoid and the ipsilateral, temporalis, and masseter. So I think that's the most confusing one. So just one more time, lateral deviation is done by the contralateral, medial, and lateral pterygoid and the ipsilateral, temporalis, and masseter. So normal range of motion um, in this joint is important to note. Um, it's going to vary a little bit for men and women. So for opening, men are going to have 40 to 45 millimeters. Women are going to have 45 to 50 millimeters. Clinically, this is easy to assess with observation. Um, a quick, easy trick is if you have four fingers perpendicular in their mouth, that's going to be considered full. The width of three fingers is going to be considered a functional, um, a functional range of motion for opening. Lateral deviation, um, not necessarily gender specific, is 10 millimeters. Protrusion is six to nine millimeters for both men and women. And retrusion is three millimeters for both men and women. So when we are examining these people, one of the most important things to take a look at when you observe is any kind of deviation. So deviations are primarily going to be C-curves and S-curves. A C-curve is indicative of a capsulitis, so easy to remember, C and capsulitis. And the patient will deviate to the side of restriction. So if you watch them open their mouth and their um, mandible deviates to one side, um, you know that that's the side of restriction. An S-curve is going to be indicative of lack of motor control, um, and those are not typically as clear cut to see. Um, the movement's a little bit more scattered, but that's going to be categorized as an S-curve. And then we're going to um, also mention deflections. A deflection occurs when the mandible deflects to one side without returning to the center, and this is going to indicate that the disc at the TMJ is displaced anteriorly. So let's talk for a second about the arthrokinematics before we get into pathologies and treatment. So there's two main um, phases that we want to talk about here. We have opening and closing. So for opening, this is going to occur with a combination of rotation and translation. The early phase of opening is going to include a posterior rotation and is responsible for 25 to 50% of the opening range of motion. The later phase is going to include anterior translation and is responsible for 50 to 100% of the range when the disc and the condylar head, condylar head translate anteriorly. So it's important to note that the early phase is associated with that posterior rotation and that later phase is inclu um, includes that anterior translation where you're going to gain the remainder of that range of motion when you're looking at the opening phase. The closing phase, the mechanics are essentially the opposite of opening. So the condylar head is going to translate posteriorly along with the disc. Then the body of the mandible is going to rotate anteriorly. And closing is going to finish when the disc rotates slightly anterior at the end of the range, which is achieved by a contraction of the superior lateral pterygoid. So again, if you're not familiar with, um, again, the anatomy, but if you're not familiar with opening and closing mechanics, those are definitely areas I would look back at because it's important to be able to understand how those are working and what's happening at the joint before you can better understand the pathologies that are going to be happening at this joint. So what we're going to move into next are those pathologies. Alexis, before we move there, did you have anything you wanted to add on 
um, you know, normative movements with this or um, Arthur kinematics? No, I don't think so. I think that was a really good uh, summary of that. Okay. So the pathologies that we're going to talk about are going to be muscle disorders, disc displacements, um, and joint pains. Okay. So the first one we're going to talk about is muscle disorders. This is typically going to include myofascial pain and trigger points, most often in the temporalis, masseter, sternocleidomastoid, upper trap, and medial and lateral pterygoid. These patients are typically going to have um, tenderness and pain when you palpate. And you're going to want to make sure you're doing both an extraoral and an intraoral palpation. I will tell you, I think these, this cluster of patients um, also are the group that is going to present with probably a history of neck pain. They may be um, grinding their teeth at night. Um, they may have headaches associated with this. So you're going to see some crossover with the, some of the cervical spine categories in patients with TMJ muscle disorder. When we talk about some of these other um, pathologies like disc displacements, joint pain, sometimes those are a little bit more localized to the temporomandibular joint and don't involve the neck quite as much. So disc displacements are broken down into three different categories. You have an anterior disc displacement with reduction, an anterior disc displacement without reduction, and a posterior disc displacement, um, which is very rare. So the first one we're going to talk about is that anterior disc displacement with reduction. So these patients are going to experience a click or a pop. The disc is going to rest in front of the condylar head, and it's going to reduce back into the joint space upon opening, at which point the patient will experience that opening click or pop. It's then going to displace anterior, anteriorly again at the end of the closing, causing a closing click. So your patients that have an opening click and a closing click generally have that anterior disc displacement with reduction. So that disc is essentially rolling back into the joint space and then displaces back out where it's resting. The anterior disc displacement without reduction does not generally have a pop or a click associated with it. So these patients won't necessarily give you that finding. Objectively, you're going to notice a limited opening due to the disc blocking that mandibular head. And if the disc is completely displaced, there will be no limitation. Essentially, the disc um, begins displaced anteriorly and is unable to reduce throughout the opening cycle. So it just kind of hangs out in that anterior position. So then the last one here is a posterior disc displacement. These are usually um, isolated to after prolonged openings, such as during like a dental procedure, and it results in the inability to close the mouth. It's typically not treatable in PT. Usually these folks have to be seen back in the dental office. Um, I can't say I've ever seen one of these in the clinic and the little bit of TMJ I have treated, um, but just know that if a patient's coming to you with this kind of an issue, I would make sure you're asking about any recent dental history. That's the most common time I think you're going to see it. The last pathology we're going to touch on here are joint pains. So just kind of generally speaking, they kind of categorize it into osteoarthritis and arthralgia. You can get osteoarthritis at the temporomandibular joint. A lot of times, though, it's going to be that arthralgia, not necessarily specified as arthritis. So the arthralgias are going to be caused by clenching and bruxing, which can be secondary to anxiety, stress, any dental abnormalities, a magnesium deficiency, caffeine intake. Basically, it doesn't have to have a set cause is the long and short there. Um, it's going to require a multifaceted approach to treatment. So usually these patients have had this had these symptoms for a long time. They're kind of dull in nature. Um, they kind of come and go. Sometimes it's increased with anxiety, stress, that kind of a thing. They often are going to need a multidisciplinary approach with PT, 
Dental is a huge part of treatment for these folks. Um, it's important to note too, like SSRIs, the serotonin um, uptake reuptake inhibitors, which is a pharmacologic treatment, may help in this population. And then sleep retraining. A lot of times, these patients have a lot of frustration because some of what causes their symptoms is subconscious for them. That clenching, clenching, and bruxing at night. You know, if they're not sleeping well because of their stress, that can all contribute to this. So it's important to ask those questions um, and be aware of that in this population, more so clinically probably than just prepping for your OCS. But some sleep retraining is done through um, like mouth orthotics, essentially, um, like orthodontic type work and stuff. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but again, I think a little bit harder population to treat just because it's kind of nonspecific. So a couple special tests that I want to make sure that we note with the TMJ section, the first one being the cotton roll test. This is used to differentiate between a muscular and a joint involvement. So as a therapist, what you're doing is you're asking the patient to bite down on a cotton roll that's placed in the back of the um, teeth on one side. You're going to assess the patient's symptoms. If they experience an increase in pain, that's going to indicate a muscular involvement because they're essentially contracting the muscles on that side. If they experience decreased pain, you're likely going to assume that this is due to a joint involvement because what happens when they bite down on that side, it distracts the joint and it can reduce their pain. You're then going to reassess the test on the opposite side. If pain increases on the original side, you have confirmation of joint involvement because they're getting the compression on the uninvolved side, if that makes sense. Um, so again, that's the cotton roll test used to differentiate between muscular and joint involvement. The next test I want to mention is the tongue blade test. So this test is used probably more in a direct access situation. I can't say I've done this one a lot clinically, um, but it's important to note. It's used to rule out a mandibular fracture. So what you're um, looking for are traumatic mechanisms of injury, you know, car accident, a fall, something of that nature. The, you're going to ask the patient to bite down on a tongue depressor between the molars on one side. The therapist is then going to attempt to break the depressor with a twisting motion on the other end. An inability to tolerate the test or the PT's inability to break the depressor should warrant radiographic imaging. That means they're not able to maintain that contraction or that um, compression at the, in the teeth and at the joint, and it could mean that there's a fracture somewhere um, near the, in the end of the mandible. A negative test is when the PT is able to break the depressor. That means the patient was able to be stronger than your force at the depressor. The examiner should first begin testing the uninvolved side so the patient knows what to expect, and then the involved side. If you're suspicious of this, it can likely be very symptom-provoking, so just make sure you're testing their uninvolved side first. Um, honestly, like I said, I haven't done it a lot clinically. I would assume that it's probably not real comfortable even on their uninvolved side, but, you know, best practice is uninvolved and then the involved side. So we're going to touch on several different treatments for these types of patients. We're going to touch on these generally. Some of the research is really varied on these. I think it's important to just note kind of what's out there in general for this population. Um, you should always best practice would be to evaluate the cervical spine also. Very rarely do these patients come in with like a very isolated TMJ issue, especially in physical therapy. Um, you know, they usually have already seen a dentist or they've been dealing with this for a long time. They've tried a lot of over-the-counter things, you know, whether it be different night guards, night splints, sleeping positions, all that kind of stuff, and they're not having success. Um, we're not going to discuss the cervical spine eval in depth in this episode. Um, it's important to note that. Um, 
you know, the muscles that surround the cervical spine also act on the TMJ. So these pathologies can be closely related. Um, pastoral re-education, including techniques for relaxation, are actually very important in this population. Patients with TMJ pain often have difficulty finding the joint's resting position, which should be lips are together loosely. The teeth are going to be slightly apart. The tongue should be resting on the roof of the mouth, and the patient should be breathing through the nose. So if your patient is very tense, um, you know, you can sometimes see these patients that clench, you know, if they have a lot of anxiety, a lot of stress, really starting with um, like mouth posture re-education is really important in terms of helping them relax or they're not even going to tolerate a lot of assessment or manual interventions to their temporomandibular area. So patient education kind of bleeds into that postural re-education, but you want to go over the resting position of the jaw and remind them that breathing should occur through the nose. You want to educate them that equal chewing on the right and left sides should be happening. A lot of people tend to chew on one side or the other, and that can cause some TMJ dysfunction. And you want to educate these folks to cut food to avoid that maximum opening, especially with like um, whole fruit, like apples or sandwiches, something like that, where they may be going into those end ranges, which could exacerbate their symptoms. We want to educate them to avoid biting nails and pens. You know, again, that's something that sounds really obvious, but nothing is obvious. So just educate them that every time they put something like that in their mouth, they change the position of their mandible and that could be affecting their TMJ symptoms. Modalities in this population. There's no strong support for the use of ultrasound. Here, ice may be effective for symptom management and TENS has variable evidence to suggest a decrease in pain level. So not a lot of not a lot of good evidence for use of modalities here. Like I said before, I think a lot of patients have usually try, in my experience, try modalities at home before they even come in to see us, usually for whatever reason with TM dysfunction. Um, PT is not usually their first line of defense. So usually if you do a good subjective history, you'll get a laundry list of things they've been trying on their own. Usually like self-massage is something they try a lot too. So the next treatment that we're going to talk about are stretching exercises. There are devices that are available to purchase that assist with like TMJ stretching. However, tongue depressors can be equally as effective if they're used properly. So just kind of gradually stacking them up, kind of distracting the joint, almost like the cotton roll test. The important factor with stretching exercises is the dosing. So we want to encourage frequent performance five to 10 times per day. That's what most of the research is going to summarize in terms of their recommendation. So, you know, it may be a little different than how you're used to doing their X prescription, um, but frequency is going to really matter for these folks. Manual therapy is going to likely need to include a variety of techniques. You're probably going to need to use some joint manipulations or mobilizations. Um, a lot of times that inferior glide or an anterior translation can be helpful. Um, I think that, you know, kind of that distraction, that inferior glide can be really like pain relieving for a lot of folks. Um, trigger point release is usually really helpful if the patient can tolerate it, especially to the pterygoids, um, masseter sometimes, some soft tissue work, and possibly dry needling to this area if that's something you're trained in doing can help with pain, pain management there. Muscle re-education, we really want to focus, teach the patient to focus on the controlled opening with manual cueing at the temporomandibular joint and verbal cues to maintain the, maintain the tip of the tongue to the roof of the mouth. So you essentially just want to have them sit up in good posture, gently press the tip of the tongue to the roof of the mouth and have them gradually open at the mouth, working on the control, making it nice and even, making sure they're not getting a deviation or a deflection. 
and you need to give them the feedback or put them in front of a mirror so that they can see. Because a lot of times these patients can't feel what normal should be. Resistant isometrics are also appropriate in this population once the irritability subsides. So isometric depression specifically can assist in relaxing those elevators and decreasing spasm, which can address masseter hypertonicity. Masseter hypertonicity is a big problem with these people, you know, especially like clenching and bruxing at night, their masseter gets really hypertonic. And so teaching them a self-isometric depression can really help with that as long as their level of irritability has declined a little bit. There is some evidence to suggest that cognitive behavioral therapy is helpful in these folks. I think that's generally in those like arthropathies um, and kind of the general pain, maybe some neck pain with it, giving them the coping skills, helping them with goal setting, behavior modification, and meditation. Um, So if cognitive behavior therapy is within your wheelhouse, great. If it's not, make sure you're referring out so that they're getting, you know, the most appropriate treatment. And then another big um, area in this of treatment in this population is splinting. So splinting is usually managed by dentistry. So sometimes what you'll find with folks with TMJ dysfunction is they kind of fall into this weird gap of in a lot of places and by a lot of insurance plans, unfortunately, it's dictated this way, but temporomandibular dysfunction is usually or most times a medical diagnosis, but it's not usually treated by physicians. It's usually treated by a dentist. And then treatment for temporomandibular dysfunction is not always covered by dental insurance because it's considered a medical code. So sometimes patients get very frustrated because they've been to the dentist several times. Now they're paying out of pocket for these expensive mouth guards or they've had a lot of dental work done. So just something to be aware of. Sometimes there's this gap in coverage for these types of things for these folks. So In my experience, I've had a lot of people try a lot of over-the-counter ones first. And there are a lot of people who pay for a custom night splint and have really great success with it and swear by it. So I think it's unfortunately one of those, the research isn't as strong as maybe it should be. You know, there's a lot of inconsistent outcomes here, but patients don't really know how they're going to respond until they try it. And unfortunately, sometimes that means forking out a fair amount of money. So splinting can be a night splint version or a 24-hour wear, depending on the need or the goal. It can be expensive and it usually requires custom fabrication. A lot of times they'll get it fabricated and then they go back to have it adjusted and then they try it for a couple nights, see how the fit is. They may go back for another readjustment, similar to how we would do orthotics. Um, Like I said, their outcomes are not real consistent with this. This is typically a spot where the dentist is involved. One advantage to splinting though, especially for those people that clench or have a lot of bruxism, is it's going to protect the enamel, um, which is really important for their overall oral health long term. And then last thing I want to mention in terms of this is that in rare cases, surgical options may be required for folks that have severe osteoarthritis in that area or aren't responding to conservative treatment. And that can include some arthroscopic techniques or an open joint replacement surgery. Again, though, those are rare just to be aware that they're out there. They mention them in current concepts. I don't know that I would spend a ton of time knowing all the details of those. So that's kind of a brief overview of temporomandibular dysfunction. I think, again, it touches on the important anatomy, making sure you understand your normal ranges of motion and movements, making sure you understand your main deviations, arthrokinematics of opening and closing, main pathologies and a couple special tests to be doing, and then kind of the general overview of what we would do for treatment of these folks. Alexis, do you have anything you want to add on temporomandibular dysfunction? No, I don't think so. I think I'll just, um, you know, reiterate what you said in the beginning that this is a very small portion of the exam. Um, I think if you don't regularly treat 
TMD, then I would definitely take the time to look through um, MedBridge if you have a MedBridge um, subscription or, you know, review the current concepts on this. I personally don't treat a ton of TMD. And so this was an area where I needed to review. But again, keep in mind the percentage of the exam that this information is versus some of the other areas. Perfect. Like always, if there's any questions, you can send us an email at certifiedocspodcast at gmail. Um, Thanks again to our Patreon members. That's been going well. Um, And if you have any uh, questions or topics for the study sessions, please make sure you're sending those along also. Yep. All right. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you.